welcome to the Fitness and Lifestyle Podcast. I'm your host, Danny Kennedy, and I'm here to help you become the very best version of yourself. What's up, legends? Welcome back to another episode of the Fitness and Lifestyle Podcast. Uh, it's nice and early here in Melbourne, and I'm absolutely pumped for today's guest, Dan Garner. For those of you who, who don't know who Dan is, um, he's a best-selling author. He's a nutrition specialist. He's a lab analysis, which I want to go over um, in a second, is to help everyone understand exactly uh, exactly what that entails. He's also a strength coach, working with some of you know the best athletes in the world from from uh, from codes such as the UFC. Um, working with Olympians, you know, he has Super Bowl champions underneath his belt. I mean, how much better of an intro can this guy get? Uh, Dan, welcome to the Fitness and Lifestyle Podcast, man. It's a pleasure to have you on. Awesome. Thanks so much, dude. And thank you for that intro. You're making me look like the man here. So it's, we're off to a, quite a start here. I like it. Uh, no, I mean, I absolutely love, you know, I say this to, to, to all guests that come on the show, but I just love having conversations with people who um, not only offer just so much value to their audience and, and anyone else's audience they get in front of, but also people who are just passionate about, passionate about what they do and, and continue to upskill and, and learn new things and be open to, to new things. And, you know, the amount of interviews and stuff I've, I've watched and listened to of yours. Um, I, I know you're very much like that and I'm just excited to, to learn from you today, man. So to get stuck into it, um, you know, as I said before, I'd love for you to quickly touch on just for the audience exactly like what a lab analysis does in your position um, and I guess how you kind of got into that role and, and the path that led you down um, that, that avenue of becoming a lab analysis and, and really going into the detail of, you know, the craft that you've, you've built on for so long now. Yeah, absolutely, man. So the way I work, yeah, so I, I'm most known for my, my work in labs now. But it was kind of like a revolution I had, or revelation, I should say, that I had like in, I believe it was maybe 2014, 2015, when I started realizing that the healthier a person was, the more effectively they adapted from training. It was like a, like a real hand in the forehead slap. I was like, of course. And then it's just from that point, I've always said that uh, the, the organism is going to adapt to the degree that it is healthy. And there's big, deep reasons for that that we can get into if you'd like, but it revolves mm. largely around the immune system and how I operate and how that, that observation came to be is because uh, I'm, I'm a functional medicine practitioner. So a lot of people were coming to me like, yes, I work, uh, you know, now I work almost exclusively with like celebrity CEOs and athletes, but like any trainer coming up, I work with anybody who's willing to hire yeah. me. Yeah. So I, I'm taking on anybody that comes my way. And it wasn't always, I want to get to the NHL. I want to be in the UFC. I want to be in the MLB. It wasn't that. It, it was just a bit like, I've got migraines. I want more energy throughout the day. Um, I've got a skin rash. Can you figure this out? And through functional medicine, I would undergo certain protocols, um, figure out certain diagnoses for these people to work on these issues that seemed totally unrelated to performance and body composition. Mm -hmm. And yet once I resolved them for them, their body composition improved, their yeah. performance improved. And I was like, hey, something's happening here because this person came to me with this ailment and I resolved it and they lost 10 pounds. Hey, this person came to me with this other ailment and then I resolved it, but they're getting stronger. And I started just seeing these correlations. I was like that the healthier people are getting, 
they're getting results in the absence of high performance nutrition, in the absence of high performance training. So that's when I was like, holy crap. You know, a lot of people ask the question of, hey, should I eat for performance or should I eat for health? Dude, it's the same thing. You, yeah. you got to try and tackle both all your way up the chain. So when I had that revelation, and to kind of circle back to your question, I had that revelation that the, the body is going to adapt to the degree that it is healthy. So therefore, when I'm looking to design a nutrition program, I, I operate on the theory of constraint. And the theory of constraint, uh, the fundamentals of the theory of constraint suggest that a system will only grow to the degree that it is constrained. Okay. So somebody may have a hidden stressor or an ailment in their physiology, be it a bacterial overgrowth, parasitic over, uh, infection, fungal overgrowth, uh, leaky gut, hormone imbalance, uh, inflammatory markers, you know, you name it, anything, any non-visible stressor, this could be a constraint in their physiology. And the uh, system will only grow to the degree that it is constrained. So what I'm looking for is that constraint holding yep. them back from becoming their better self. Because a lot of people, they will focus, uh, I call it majoring in the minors, they focus on things that are, aren't currently relevant. So they'll get on a hyper, a hyper advanced periodization process. It's very fine, unique manipulations to training volume, intensity, and frequency. They're, mm -hmm. they're looking at different types of equipment, angles of force, velocity, all of this stuff. And if you can imagine a bar graph cut in half, like just one bar cut in yep. half for people listening just on audio, you are currently at the 50% mark because you're, physiolog you're physiologically constrained by the ailment that's currently in your body. All of that additional advancement that you're adding via periodization, training volume, intensity, frequency, counting calories, counting macros, all of this stuff, that enhances your potential for advancement but a system will only grow to the degree that it is constrained. Mm. So yeah. no matter what, and this is the story a lot of people come to come yeah. to us trainers with is, man, I feel like I'm eating right. I feel like I'm training right, but I'm just not getting the results that I'm expecting. Well, a system is only going to grow to the degree that it is constrained. And you currently have a constraint that's not visible to us. So I want to look at labs, be it blood, saliva, urine, stool, hair, whatever. I want to look at it all, identify any constraints, remove those constraints so that you can unlock your next level of potential. Yeah. I love that. And, and almost the first thing that pops into mind for me is, uh, you know, I've heard you mention this on, on a number of the interviews um, that you you've done and a lot of your content around being a programmer versus being a coach, you know, on paper, as you said before, you know, like the body composition side of things, you'd be looking at all these different factors, which you think should make sense on paper when you have the athlete or the client doing certain things. But if you're unable to have that human side to it and that understanding of, of also being a coach and, and finding those underlying factors as to where the problem is, which, you know, in this case being that constraint, uh, I think that's super important. And for, for those listening, you know, the, the audience of the show, like I, I know there's a lot of, uh, of coaches and trainers that are really interested in, in this podcast as well. So I think that's, that's just a massive golden nugget for you to understand is that there's a big difference between programming and coaching. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, that's a difference between, I say it too, a difference between a scientist and a coach. 
we need both. Lots of times in the industry, you, you go on social media and it's such a waste of time because they're picking sides. Rather than picking sides, let's have conversations. We can yeah. learn from scientists and scientists can learn from us. And you find that the further you get up in the mountain, in the world of coaching, the more conversations you actually have and the less debates occur because the yeah. people who are debating they don't get it yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> put, put, put simply, they don't get it yet. <laughs> One thing, uh, another thing I really like about your content is the consistency side of things. You know, it's a, a big reason why I feel like this podcast has been able to grow and, and my business in general in terms of the online and face-to-face -face side of things is the consistency that I've been able to put in with producing content for, for so long now. When you first started out in the industry or I guess once you started to post content online, what I guess was the the outcome that you were you were hoping for in terms of that consistency of adding value to to people's lives through whether it be platforms such as Instagram and Facebook was it purposely to try and gain the the bigger fish that you they tend to be working with right now or was it just something that you really found joy out of by being able to add value to other people with with content around nutrition and training on a daily basis? Yeah, it's adding value. Like, like I'm not a like a religious guy or by any means, but I do believe that if you provide value into the universe, the universe will provide value back to you. Yeah, and that's that's just how it works. Like a lot of these coaches, and again, the ones who don't get it, they like think they're keeping secrets with stuff. <laughs> yeah. um, but the more you give away, the more you get in return. Because if if I if you unpack your amazing program design strategy, I still want you to design my program. Like, I'm, I'm not going to yeah. try and take that and do it. I still want you to do it. Like, it, it's kind of the, the comparison I like to use is actually with uh, Chef Gordon Ramsay. One of his most famous dishes is the beef wellington. So if Gordon Ramsay were to give me the exact recipe of the beef wellington, I'd still fuck it up. Yeah. There's, no way, <laughs> there's no way that I would make it as good as him. Yeah. It's, it's, it's years of experience, hammering on his craft, knowing when to push, when to pull, when mm -hmm. to turn it up, when to back it off, where to even start to optimize the process, the efficiency. I'd make it in hours. He'd probably make it in 20, 30 minutes. It's, it's, it's completely different. So even if you have a coach's recipe, which speaking to the coaches right now, if you provide your recipe via articles, podcasts, uh, videos, uh, yeah. seminars, whatever it's going to be, all of that good energy is going to come back to you. So that's, that's something I've always, I've just always known was going to turn into something. And as I continued doing that, I also continued learning more about myself because what content I enjoyed putting out yeah. was getting me further and further dialed in. Because when I got first got into the industry, I didn't know I wanted to work with pro athletes. It was a lot of, you know, working with everybody. In and between saying, phase, yeah. Yeah. And saying yes to all opportunities until eventually it was too many opportunities and I was forced to decide which ones I actually want to keep. And then that, that, that got narrower and narrower and narrower as the, my career went on. And I found out exactly what my lane is. And that's, that's lab-based performance for um, very, very high level people looking to uncover everything in their physiology. Fantastic. Yeah. I love what you said there. A, a client once said to me, you know, people don't pay for information they pay for implementation yeah. um, you know which, which just led to me yeah just which led me to just be putting out absolutely everything that i possibly could knowing that you know like you just said you can you can hand someone uh you can hand someone everything they need to for success but it does not necessarily mean that they're going to put it to use and most of the time they probably won't 
Yeah. Something, something I, I, uh, I heard you speak about, um, you know, going back, I'm a, and I'm sure we will definitely touch on this at some point, but uh, I'm a big UFC fan, um, particularly Sugar Sean. Um, uh, and, and I remember a while back when you were on his, you appeared on his podcast for a little bit with him and Timbo, and, and you, talk about, you talked about the importance or the, the effect of dehydration, which, you know, as a coach and as a trainer and just in, ter- in terms of being someone who's interested in health and fitness, you already have that understanding of how detrimental hydration can be to performance. But hearing you go into detail around, you know, the changes in that 1% of, of losing that, that water from the body, how much that can affect, particularly the UFC fighter in this case, but, you know, I'm assuming everyone in general. Are you able to just touch on that briefly uh, in a little detail around how much of a significant impact dehydration can have on the body? Absolutely. So first and foremost, our body, and everybody knows this, but they just, some reason, they don't understand the, the relevance of it. Our body is 70% water. It's that way for a reason. It's like, it's the most critical nutrient. Everybody wants to glorify, say, curcumin. But if you're dehydrated, nothing else really matters. <laughs> you, you are 70% of this thing. And if you care about muscle growth and performance, muscle is 75% water. So how well do you think a muscle is going to perform if dehydrated? If it's 75% water, it's not going to perform very well. It's, it, it's, there's not a chance that it's going to perform well. Water is 75% muscle, uh, 70% of our entire body. It's literally a part of every single biological reaction. If it's going to be a cofactor, a coenzyme, a, a rate limiting amino acid, um, a catalyst, whatever it's going to be, water has to be present at all of these. So we're mm-hmm. talking about systemic. It doesn't matter if it's hormone generation, ATP creation, um, cofactors for detoxification. And the, uh, water has to be there for absolutely everything beyond performance, beyond all of this other stuff. Um, not to mention dehydration, even as we've seen in research, even slight cases of dehydration elevate cortisol. Cortisol runs antagonistic with testosterone and melatonin. So mm. if somebody's slightly dehydrated going into say bedtime, well, we're going to have elevated cortisol which then suppresses melatonin, which is going to offset sleep length and sleep quality. People don't think about that. They're like, man, my sleep sucks. I should increase my melatonin or my sleep sucks. I should take more sedatives or whatever, or smoke weed before bed. You know, a lot of these things will knock you out. Sure. But it's not why it's not like, what do I need to take to knock myself out? Why am I not sleeping properly to begin with? Sleep is supposed to be a natural function. And to, you know, to call back to the, the Sugar Sean O'Malley podcast or the Timbo Sugar Show, a 4%, so uh, dialing all that up, a 4%, just a small 4% uh, reduction in body water reduces coordination, reduces muscular strength, reduces endurance, and increases stress on the heart. Mm. So, and that stress, stress on the heart happens just at a half a percent loss in body water. So you are increasing your heart rate just at a half a percent loss in body water and exercise induced fatigue is associated with elevated heart rate. And that's happened before. Like sometimes you'll be on a set of like 20 on squats and you're, you actually won't musk, you won't reach muscular fatigue, um, as much as you will reach cardiovascular fatigue. And that's why work capacity matters and why, why I have guys do cardio, even when they're bulking, because sometimes you can reach cardiovascular fatigue before you actually stimulate hypertrophy if you're going into a a greater set, but then that'll happen for sure. 
if you're dehydrated. So at a half a percent loss of water, we got stress on the heart. At a 1% loss in water, we're reducing muscular endurance. At a 3% loss in water, we're reducing muscular strength. And at a 4% loss in water, that's when we start running into problems such as coordination. So you're a worse athlete, you're weaker, you're less endurance, and your heart rate's going crazy, which means it's gonna be hard to be calm and you have to be calm if you want to perform in anything in, in an optimal flow state from a, from a sports psychology perspective. So you can connect hydration to literally anything you want to, man. It's, it's so underrated. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it, how, how people can hear this. And I can guarantee right now people will have listened to those numbers and it'll astonish most people. Yeah, it still won't be up there in that order of importance when it comes to what am I going to focus on for my, to, to change my, my body composition? Like, what am I going to focus on with my training this week? It's still, it just kind of gets left to the side, which is crazy. And I think, you know, even seeing the reaction from, from Sean on, uh, on that specific episode, particularly when you talked about, you know, how you could be the hardest hitter in the UFC, you could be the most talented guy on the roster, but that percentage yep. still applies to you. Uh, and I, I think you can kind of see that really hit home for him as well, but it's super interesting, like knowing that that natural talent or the hard work or wherever you are in terms of your skill level as, a, as an athlete means nothing in comparison to the effect that the hydration, dehydration will still have on the body. For sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you said that because it's true. Because it's true. It's a rate-limiting step for performance. So you could be genetically talented, you could be on an awesome meal plan. You could have had an awesome training program and you could have got a great sleep last night, but you will not perform optimally if you're dehydrated. Yeah. It is a rate limiting step to performance. Period. Do you think, I mean, this is kind of hard for you to say from the outside in, um, and, you know, take, taking a, a bit of a wild guess here, but when you look at someone like a McGregor who, when he goes the distance or when his fights seem to last a little longer, he seems to gas out quite quickly. And that seems to be his weakness. You know, even looking at, you know, him, him now having ballooned up to, what is it like 190 pounds or something, something absolutely crazy. Like, do you see anything obvious or could you think of anything in terms of the possibility of what could be changed in, I guess, his training or, or with his nutrition side of things that could alleviate that, that problem that anything that really stands out to you? It's hard to say because I don't know his training and nutrition, yeah. right? So yeah. it would be pure speculation. But with that said, I think there's absolutely something that could be changed because it's happened every time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it, when yeah. something happens every single time, there is certainly area for improvement. Mm -hmm. And the biochemical sources of fatigue are, are wide. There's dehydration, there's electrolytes, there's cofactors, there's coenzymes, there is calories and macronutrients, there's the proper weight cut. There is feeding fast twitch muscle fibers. There's, uh, there's, it's, it's very, very varied. And um, I think that there's certainly an area that's currently not being unturned. And so the first thing I would do with a McGregor is put him through the whole suite. Uh, I yeah. would want to identify any existing constraints because uh, something is happening there. And I don't think it's as simple as people chalk it off. He's, he's a fast twitch muscle fiber dude, and they just yeah. fatigue quickly. There is some truth to that, but there's absolutely truth to those being able to be conditioned as well. There's many anaerobic threshold um, strategies, anaerobic power and capacity training you can do in addition with the correct fuel. And then conditioning simply becomes a fuel and a supply and demand chain that you just keep fueling over the course of that fight. So something could be done. Look, I know, I know we could, uh, I know we could go into serious detail about, I guess, his next question, but just very, very quickly in terms of 
let's say just your average Joe or your average client that, that you're working with, um, who is ticking all the boxes in regards to aiming to get a good amount of sleep each night. They're staying hydrated. They're, they're in either a caloric deficit or, or surplus depending on their goal. And they're doing all the right things, but still really struggling to see serious progression in regards to where you think they should be at. Like how common do you think it is that there is that constraint, that underlying constraint that people wouldn't necessarily know about if they're not, you know, getting things like blood work and, and checking their gut health and stuff. Like how common is that among society? It's extremely common, dude. It's extremely common. And, and, and it, not only do so many people have constraints, but they view their constraints as normal. And just because mm. something's common, it doesn't mean it's normal. Like people, um, they, they'll have abs in the morning, but then bloating at nighttime. It's yeah. common, I think but bloating, not normal. Yeah, bloating yeah. seems to be that, that one which, which almost every second person seems to complain about. Yeah, bloating, diarrhea, mm. constipation, a lack of energy, trouble falling asleep, low sex drive, um, poor memory and concentration, poor focus. These are all things that people say constantly. But then they'll also attach some dumb thing to it. Like, oh, I'm 30. It's downhill from here. <laughs> uh, I'm 40. Yeah. It just happens when you're 40. No, it doesn't. It happens to idiots when they're 40 because they say <laughs> things like that. You know, there, there are clear constraints happening right yeah. now. And just because something's common, it doesn't mean it's normal. Normal is healthy physiologic function. Bloating's not healthy physiologic function. Low sex drive and an inability to get an erection, that's not normal. Poor sleep. You're supposed to fall asleep. You're not supposed yeah. to try to fall asleep. You're supposed to fall asleep. You're supposed to have energy. You're supposed to be able to translate your thoughts into words. You're supposed to be able to do all of these things and vibrate at a frequency that, that exudes health. You don't have to tell people about your health strategy because they freaking know that you're yeah. a healthy and vibrant person. But people just chalk it off. It's just because it's common. They think it's normal. So they don't get their labs done. They don't get their, they've never done a stool analysis in their life. They've never done a urine analysis in their life. And then even beyond that, you do have to get a skilled practitioner to look at it because you're going to get one practitioner who's just going to see if you have disease. And then you're going to get mm. the next practitioner who's actually trying to optimize health with your results. And those are two completely different schools of thought, two completely different coaching frameworks because the average person might get their blood work done. And then what's the, what, what happens? Hey, I'll call you if anything's irregular. And then they never call. Yeah. And that's, that's because they're not considering ratios. They're not looking at um, predictive values if something's trending low or trending high. They're not using excellent calculations. Like for example, um, a basic blood chemistry, you can do a calculation called a serum osmolarity score. And that's something anyone can Google. And, uh, uh, and that's the gold standard for hydration. So if you've had Run. your blood work done in the past four months, you can go online, take a few markers from that blood work, type it into a serum osmolarity calculator, and you got the gold standard of hydration. Boom. Done. Like That's just one example of over 50 that I could talk about here, about people underutilizing blood work, let alone underutilizing urine, saliva, and stool on top of all of that. So people absolutely can have constraints, but they hold themselves back because they think what's common is normal, but then mm -hmm. they could possibly hold them back even further because they're speaking to someone who's looking to see if they have a disease rather than looking to see what they can do to optimize their physiology. What would be the, in terms of, you know, in your opinion, I guess if someone was able to choose one of these tests or one thing to get checked, you know, in terms of 
ranking of importance, like what would you recommend for someone that's tuned into this episode right now that does want to go and, and, and figure out what may be their constraint? Like what would that test be? Would it be the blood, the stool, the, the urine, like in terms of a starting point? It'd be blood, man. It'd be blood. blood. There's a reason why you can get a, a complete blood count on a comprehensive metabolic panel in Melbourne. I can also get it here in Canada. You can get it in Hong Kong, in Taiwan. You can go get it in Southern California. You can get it anywhere in the world for a reason. It has thousands of scientific studies supporting its reliability and its validity. It is the most scientifically rock-solid lab in existence, period. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's a lot of other labs with, you know, shiny icons and colors and graphics that, that make it, it's, it's almost like marketing, you know, like a cereal yeah. box has to try to tell you it's healthy. Whereas broccoli just sits there because <laughs> everyone knows that it's healthy. Yeah. Like this, wait, the cereal box is like, hang on, why do you have to prove so hard that you're healthy? Blood chemistry is like that. It's it, blood chemistry yeah. is the broccoli of the lab world. That's, a, right. that's, something I, right. that's something I never thought I would say. Blood, ke <laughs> blood chemistry is the bro broccoli of the lab world because it is unbelievable, man. And it's also one of the cheapest. It, does, it doesn't hurt that it's one of the cheapest. So it's not just like, oh man, do I got to be a pro athlete to do this stuff? Nah, yeah. you, you, need, you need about 40, 50 bucks. Yeah. And, then, and then spend another 100 to get someone legit to look at it. And yes. not just, you know, don't try and wing. If you try and wing it yourself, then it's not even worth the 50 bucks you spent on it because it's, yeah. it's not something you can do part time. I've been passionately researching this stuff 24 hours a day for many years and there's so much to learn. So just, yeah, it, it would be the basic blood chemistry without a doubt, man. And I could, I'm going to in the future, pending schedule, I'm going to be doing an entire seminar series only on blood chemistry. There's, there's that much. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah, right. Incredible. I wanted to just take a, a step backwards again, just quickly, you know, you're coming into this, this chat with you, Dan, you know, one of the things I was really interested in purely from a, a, a selfish point of view, but I think the listeners would, would get a bit out of it as well is just exactly like, I guess the science. And again, we could spend a whole episode on this, um, but the science or the detail around what goes into a weight cut for a fighter, such as a, a sugar, Sean O'Malley, like coming into the week of the fight, you know, for those, that are uh, interested in the UFC or even just any combat sports. It's so interesting to see how, you know, an athlete's uh, weight set point can, can be reduced by so much in such a short period of time, but then within 24 hours be able to be replenished enough to perform at their best at obviously a, a higher weight than what they were at the weigh-in without having yep. any of these gut issues or without having any uh, bloating and cramping from, from adding in so much um, replenishment again. So are you able to just take us over um, what that typical process would look like um, on fight week? Sure. So just to give the, the listeners an idea, if you are unfamiliar of the, the swings that can happen here, um, Sean O'Malley, he, uh, I, I had him weigh in at 135 on weigh-ins, and then that night he was 156. So that, that was in the same day, that afternoon. And then no bloating, no cramping, no diarrhea. 
still at his knockout power, still has conditioning to go. You know, I, I've worked with him for seven fights now. He goes three rounds often in the past, just in the past few fight, fights, like uh, against Chris Moutinho, for mm-hmm. example. He went all three rounds and set the all-time record for most strikes landed in the strikes fight. Strikes landed, yeah. And it didn't look like he was slowing down either. He was still throwing at no. a high rate. And, and, and yeah, that, that's somebody who cut over 20 pounds the day before. So that's a, it's a proper weight cut. You should get the weight back on without gastric issues and also hold on to all your power and conditioning. So that's a swing. Uh, a big, another big one was uh, with Michael Bisping when he got, uh, I was his coach when he won the middleweight championship. Mm. Um, <clears throat> he actually took it on short notice. Uh, somebody pulled out of a fight with Luke Rockhold two yep. weeks before the title fight. And Mike said, hey, I've got the fight. I've got the fight. And I said, okay. What do you weigh? <laughs> that was my first question. And he said 208. And so in two weeks, we had to get down to 185. And then he got down, to one, got down to 185 <clears throat> in two weeks. And then that afternoon, so not even that night, that afternoon, he was already 203. So we just these swings are very big that these guys do. So yeah. it's not something that the amateur can just fly into because yeah. this is where it does get, you know, more tricky and more dangerous. I just talked about dehydration effects at 1%, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let, yeah. let alone losing that. Okay. So this, this is a careful and unique process, but to kind of swing back here, you asked me about fight week. Just, just quickly on- before you, before you move on, sorry, Dan, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. Are you able to just, uh, again, just before you keep going in terms of, you know, you say that the weigh in there, like with someone like sugar, Sean, like one thirty five at weigh in and what was it? One fifty six by that night. Is that replenishment in weight? Is that predominantly coming from hydration, uh, like from, from liquid form or how much of that is, is food. And then I guess the second part of that question is how much research or, or trial and error needs to go into figuring out for that individual, like, what certain foods are going to allow him to add that, that, that weight and replenish those glycogen stores enough without having any of those gastric um, issues in the process. Okay. So when it comes to adding the weight back on, it is majority glycogen replenishment and water. You're getting a lot of carbs back in the system and you're also getting a ton of water back Mm -hmm. in the system that would make up the predominant of the initial weight gain. But then that's a delicate process too, because water isn't hydration. Hydration is water plus electrolytes. Mm-hmm. So that, that process, if you only have water, then your fighter's going to get a lot of diarrhea and, and you're not really going to hydrate because it's going right. to be in one hole and out the other. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you've got to optimize your hydration. And with that comes carbohydrates, carbohydrate. The carbs actually help the hydration process here in addition to refueling the athlete. So it's really two prongs you're following, rehydration and replenishment. Mm-hmm. And through both of those, that's, that's optimal water and electrolytes on one prong and carbohydrate intake on the other prong. A lot of that happens in the first two hours afterwards, and then you start bringing in um, easily digestible food. Okay. Now, as far as is there trial and error involved in figuring out what's going on with this athlete? I'd really have two things to say to that. Number one, you should already know what foods work for their system in fight camp. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. so for, for example, I've <clears throat> never actually, and I, I've said no. If a fighter contacts me and says, hey, can you do my weight cut? And they're ready for weight cut. I say no. I, I don't know you. I don't know your physiology yet. I don't know anything about you. 
I don't want your money. So I, the first thing I would say is you should already have a relationship with that athlete and know what foods work with them and what don't. You'll find that out in fight camp and via bloating, constipation, diarrhea, that type of thing, avoiding that. And then the second thing I would say is that there's nothing wrong with running a test cut. So if yeah. you're say 16 to 20 weeks out, if, if you're still got a ways to go, then you can run a test cut with that athlete. And you don't have to go all the way to the weight class. You can just get close to it. Mm -hmm. And yeah. then you, you run that test cut and then you identify even sweat rates. So like, do you lose more weight in the hot bath? Do you lose more weight in the mummy wrap? Do you lose more weight with the sauna? Um, what's your nighttime? Uh, lost? Did you lose? Did you lose one kilo overnight? Did you lose a half a kilo overnight? What do mm -hmm. you lose? So we can start to calculate. Okay, this is the you lose weight best with the sauna and then the, and then the mummy wrap. And then we can also guarantee, you know, from the day before to the day of that you're going to lose another kilo just from urination over. So you start to actually pre calculate things um, in order to make the weight cut a lot smoother than it otherwise would have been. So it's take away the guesswork. Yeah. The, if you want to take the absolute safest approach, which is what I did for my first weight cut it, when I, cause I was nervous the very first time I had a combat yeah. athlete and I did my first weight cut. Um, I was like a personal trainer at the time. I was like, Holy yeah. crap, this, this is going to be, this is going to be interesting. <laughs> um, <laughs> but so I did the test cut and I built my confidence in addition to the combat athletes confidence. Mm -hmm. It was a wrestler actually. And then, uh, moving into competition, I already knew what foods worked for him. And also he already knew what foods worked for him. So then we have that dialed in, in combination with the test cut, and then we're ready to rock and roll. But after a point in your career, like right now, um, I, I take on fighters if they're eight weeks out, six weeks out, 10 weeks okay. out. I, I, but I'm a different animal. I've done a hundred of these. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's just different for me now. Yeah. But, um, if anybody's new, they should do the test cut and then the whole identifying what's going to bloat them and what's not. Just the final, the final piece on this weight cut, just for a bit of clarity for the listeners, you mentioned a number of the techniques in terms of, uh, of getting rid of that, that water retention before, like, are you able to quickly just speak on like what that process involves for those that don't know in terms of when we talk about a weight cut. So for a lot of people listening that, that don't, um, watch, watch combat sports may not really understand how that process works. So are you able to give us just an idea of say 24 to 48 hours before, before weigh-ins, like what's, what a fighter would typically be doing to lose that weight? Yeah, sure. So it really begins seven days out. Okay. So like that, that's really, and, and 10 days out if you're a little too heavy, yep. but typically, you know, on average, the first thing you're going to do is pull all carbs. Cause you're going to lose, if, uh, you know, two to three kilos just in glycogen loss. Like, and, and hold on. And if anybody is like new to this stuff, it's called a weight cut and not a fat cut for a reason. Yeah. Okay. So, so when someone says you took 20 pounds off Michael Bisping in, in, in two weeks, it's, it's not, that's not from a calorie deficit. That's from, it, it is a weight cut and not a, a fat cut. So what we're doing here is we're, we're, we're essentially hacking and tricking the body in order to lose a lot of weight very fast, not necessarily lose much body fat. To build yeah. some body fat, because you're certainly in a calorie deficit in fight week, but um, it's not going to be 20 pounds. It's <laughs> typically not going to happen. So with that caveat and, and clarity in place, um, typically, you know, the first thing you're going to pull out is going to be carbs because you'll lose a couple of kilos just in glycogen loss right there. And then you're also going to water load the athlete. 
And this is essentially tricking a hormone known as antidiuretic hormone in the body. And what it's essentially doing is it's turning off antidiuretic hormone. And when you turn off something that's antidiuresis, well, then diuresis can happen. So yeah. the body is essentially saying, holy crap, there is a whole lot of water coming in here. So I am going to ensure we get this water out of the system. We don't need uh. to retain any because there's more fluid coming in constantly. Yeah. But then antidiuretic hormone takes more than a day to turn back on. So when you water load and then stop drinking water, your body keeps excreting water even yeah. though you're not replacing it because antidiuretic hormone's not working anymore until it figures out, holy crap, we've lost 20 pounds, I better <laughs> turn it back on. And then it's back on in time for, for refueling. So we lose some kilos through glycogen um, depletion. And then through water loading, we lose a lot of weight there as well. It's gonna depend on the size of the athlete though and their, and their water concentration. <clears throat> We also do through sodium manipulation as well, because sodium's water retentive. So through, again, sodium utilization and then removal, we're able to kind of trick the body into depleting even more water and electrolytes from the system. You can also remove fiber, and this will help rid the yep. body of any additional GI <laughs> residue that's currently in the gastrointestinal tract. So then you lose even more there. So then through a combination of glycogen depletion, um, water loading, sodium manipulation, um, fiber um, removal in the final day prior, and then also simply just getting as lean as possible during camp. So getting lean actually starts, you know, eight weeks out. Yeah. Um, and so you're, you're a leaner person and kind of ties back to the beginning of the podcast or basically the beginning of the podcast anyways. Um, you actually want to be really muscular for your weight class because muscle contains 75% water, whereas yeah. fat cells contain 3% water. So a really muscular person can actually lose way more weight than someone of equal weight, but of higher body fat percentage. So that's very key as well. And then at that point, you should be pretty close. And then yep. we sauna and mummy wrap the rest. And that's what happens in that final 24 hours you're talking about. Crazy. It's, it's a, such a full-on process, but I love how there's such an art to it and, and a science to it where you're, you're able to, as you said before, take the guesswork out of it. Just, to, just on... Um, Again, I've only got a couple more things for you here, Dan. I want to be um, mindful of your time. Um, but just on the the side of cortisol, you know, you, uh, just for the, for the listener here, like a lot of people hear that, you know, cortisol um, can be detrimental for, for fat loss. But at the same time, cortisol is also talked about as being a necessity for, for, for seeing the body change and, and stimulation with the muscles and whatnot. So an example of a UFC fighter who is going through, you know, a serious amount of, um, of, I guess, trauma to the body, um, in terms of fight week that obviously their cortisol levels have to be super high. You would think, um, at moments throughout that week with the, the excitement and the nervousness around the fight, like how, how am I trying to word this for the listener? Like what I guess are the, in a basic form, like the pros and the cons of cortisol levels. Like when is it a good thing and when is it a bad thing for cortisol levels uh, to be higher? So there's no such thing as a bad hormone that doesn't yeah. exist. Hormones are only ever bad if they're chronically high or chronically low. Yep. Uh, a hormone in an acute high or acute low sense is doing it in response to an acute effect. Or a hormone also in its normal homeostatic state has a ton of health benefits. I mean, you just think, think from an evolutionary biology perspective. We haven't evolved millions of years 
to make the mistake of making a hormone with the sole purpose of being bad for us. It just, it makes zero sense. Yeah. yeah. That that (laughs) we haven't evolved. Our biology is not that stupid is I guess what I'm saying is that we've got this dumb people love to make an enemy like insulin's the enemy, cholesterol's the enemy, cortisol's the enemy. And anytime you speak in absolutist terms, you just don't understand human metabolism because cortisol is immunostimulatory. It's actually beneficial for a certain branch of the immune system. Cortisol is actually anti-inflammatory. You're probably familiar with its sister hormone, cortisone, that a lot of athletes will inject yeah. in order to reduce localized inflammation so they can finish the last quarter or last round, whatever they're doing. Cortisol is also what provides energy substrates. So that's why it's high during exercise because it will it, uh, um, support the process of getting glucose into the bloodstream to be transported to the muscle cell and the mitochondria for the production of energy. But it's also what helps break down triglycerides into fatty acids to also be transported over to the mitochondria and burn for energy. So between being immunostimulatory, anti-inflammatory, providing the muscle with glucose to perform, providing the body with fat so it can burn its own fat, get leaner and still perform. Not to mention cortisol is also one of the primary hormones of energy as well. Mm. And that's why, you know, if, if you, if you study uh, cortisol curves, we have our highest levels upon waking and it tapers off as the day goes on. And that's because it has an inverse relationship with melatonin. That's basically, you know, long story short, your sleep wake cycle is largely governed by the inverse relationship of cortisol to melatonin. Cortisol begins high because we didn't always have light bulbs kicking around. So we needed to get our to-do list of hunting and gathering done before sundown. So we've got a lot of energetic, a lot of glucocorticoid release, a lot of energy substrates available to us in order to get our to-do list done for the day before it's supposed to taper off as the night goes on. And as it tapers off appropriately, that allows melatonin to increase. And just as a memory tool, serotonin puts you to sleep and melatonin keeps you asleep. But cortisol will really effectively blunt both of those that's why curves ultimately looks like an x pattern for people who are just just listening high cortisol in the morning low in the evening low melatonin all day but then higher in the evening and that's another hugely beneficial and important component of cortisol in our physiology among many other things that keep us alive like fight or flight you can go on with cortisol and the the myths of cortisol that yeah. it, it is not a bad guy. It does so many good things for us. But when it comes to a fighter on fight week, um, that's an acute that's an acute issue. Um, for for cortisol to impact somebody, it's going to take chronically high or chronically low levels. And I would have already picked that up with their lab work. Yeah. But then B, I would have also picked that up in their fight camp from their energy levels, from their ability to recover if they keep getting colds and or flus or whatever it's going to be. This is stuff I would have picked up in advance. And one week of high cortisol is really not going to affect our process. Interesting. The in terms of, again, going back to, say, the average Joe um, or the everyday client or anyone who's tuned into to this episode right now, pretty pretty loaded question, I guess. But where, what, do you, what would you say if you had to pick one of the most underrated and overrated factors that people really focus on or, or lack focus on when it comes to changing their body composition for fat loss? Optimizing their physiology. Um, a lot of people think you need to lose weight in order to be healthy, but the reality is that you need to be healthy in order to lose weight. 
It's, it's the reverse. The reverse mm -hmm. is true. You need to optimize your physiology first. And, you know, let's just bring this down to an example. Let's say you've got a biological twin, okay? You're both on the exact same training program and exact same diet. You've got high testosterone. He's got low testosterone. Who's going to get the better result? You. High testosterone, yeah. Yeah, you're on the yeah. exact same diet and the exact same training program. Yeah. It's not the calories you're taking in that's going to make the difference. It's the physiology that those calories are going into that's mm -hmm. going to make the difference. So if you're an unhealthy person and you start a diet, you're just a lighter, unhealthy person. <laughs> <laughs> that, unhealthy person on a diet, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, you've seen that though. You've seen yeah. these I idiots. And, and it's usually a, a professor that's like, um, a professor loses weight on McDonald's diet because he induced <laughs> caloric deficit. Yeah. Shocking, bro. You just shocked the world. <laughs> like what a, what a stupid thing to do because of course you're going to lose weight because you induced a calorie deficit. Yeah. You're still an unhealthy idiot though. You, for, you forgot <laughs> to solve that problem along the way. So you have to get healthy first and then weight loss comes natural at that mm. time because now you are hormonally healthy. Now you're doing something that's gonna be way more ability to be consistent, to kind of call back to what you were saying about consistency. When you're healthy, it's a lot easier to be motivated and be consistent because you don't feel like crap all the time. Time, mentally, physically, and emotionally. So health drives the hormonal and biochemistry environment that demands a healthy body composition change. Like people would be amazed at how much their outside world changes once they figure out their inside world. Inside. So that's that's absolutely the most underrated thing. It's so popular to count calories and macros these days that people forget you're supposed to be healthy too. Love that, Dan. Look, in terms of where people can can find more of your content, um, you know, I, I know you, you're still running multiple podcasts now. Is it still, yeah. still got the three yeah. going, is it? I've got all kinds of podcasts yeah. going, yeah. So I've got a bunch of podcasts going, and now I'm also going to be a co-host on Barbell Shrugged. Fantastic. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's, uh, we've already recorded some episodes. We're getting some in the bank before we start leaking them out. But um, yeah, I'm going to be co-hosting Barbell Shrugged. I've got a few of my own podcasts that you can find, but you'll, you'll find everything. Just follow me on Instagram at Dan Garner nutrition on Instagram. And that's basically the, the hub where you'll find all my stuff. Fantastic. Look, Dan, uh, again, really appreciate your time today, man. Um, I've, uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed our chat and, um, I'm sure we could have sat here and oh, I could anyway, I could definitely sit here and talk to you for hours. So, um, hopefully we can, we can do a follow up uh, conversation at some point in time, but for the listeners of or the, who are viewing today's episode, um, just wanted to say a big thank you for tuning in and I know you would have taken away a lot of value. So make sure you go and follow along with Dan's, um, content and his journey and, and you know, reach out to me if you have anything that you, uh, uh, any questions? And I know Dan's got a bunch of courses and whatnot for, for the trainers out there that want to really take their, their skill set to the next level. Um, again, Dan, thanks so much, mate. Um, really appreciate it. Love, love the content you're putting out there. And um, I've learned, learned a lot today. So thank you. This was an absolute blast, man. Thank you very much. Pleasure. And for everyone who's tuned in, we'd love for you to screenshot this episode on your phone and share it to your Instagram story for us. Tag myself, tag Dan. Uh, we'd love to hear some feedback from today's show. Look forward to chatting to you in, uh, in the next episode of the Fitness and Lifestyle Podcast.